Welcome to CrashPad. We interview founders and employees of failed startups to get a picture of what led to the startup's failure and other valuable lessons. Enjoy. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Vivek James, and I am host of CrashPad, along with my co-host, Manav Sindaraman. And uh, this week, we are pleased to have Tom Galatly, who was the first employee at Sidecar, a former head of data labeling at Cruise, and currently vice president of engineering and co-founder of Centaur Labs. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Tom. Thanks for being here. Just to give our listeners a little bit of an intro to Sidecar, uh, Sidecar was an early ride-sharing and business-to-business uh, delivery startup that operated from 2011 to 15, and uh, it was one of the earliest uh, companies in the field uh, alongside Uber and Lyft. And so here we're going to explode what exactly uh, you know led to Sidecar's rise and then its ultimate downfall. Yes, and I would like to clarify, we were in fact the first peer-to-peer ride-sharing company. Oh, okay. Um, Uber did exist, but they were just black cars. So we were the first to put people in cars with strangers. Yeah, we were actually like looking into the background and it turns out, um, I think one of the founders uh, actually had a patent on the very uh, notion of ride sharing. And he filed it in 2000, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Sunil Paul, a very forward-thinking guy. Which is a little (laughs) insane when you consider a technology that seems so normal to us now. When you need to go from place to place in your Uber or whatever, but yeah, 2000. Yeah, it was about 15 years ahead of the curve. <laughs> so yeah, like before we go into that, um, like we just want to hear about like your background. Uh, what 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 exactly was your path before you entered the startup craze? Um, like what were your college days like? Sure. Yeah. So I went to the University of Michigan. I studied computer science engineering. Go blue. Go blue. Um, Every engineer has to take programming in their freshman year at Michigan, and while I didn't intend to, you know, major in this, I realized I really liked it, and I was pretty good at it, and everyone else was having a terrible time, so I thought, (laughs) maybe I should should pay attention and pursue this. So I majored in computer science. Um, The way I got it into the startup world is actually kind of funny. Um, I met a guy named Jahan Khanna uh, because the two of us were like, kind of musicians, you know, trying to play in bands on the side while we were studying. And we ended up getting introduced to one another at this like band tryout my junior year of college. Best way um, best way to meet another uh, startup founder. Yeah, totally. And the band, you know, didn't go anywhere. But as the band was not going anywhere, Jahan was like, oh, by the way, I'm starting this company. Do you want to be my intern? And he was he was in the grade above me. So he was graduating that year and I was a rising senior. And his company was basically, he won like a pitch competition that you get a grant for, I think, $25,000 and you work on your business for the summer. And so his business idea was um, there's this program at Michigan called Magic Bus. It probably exists on every campus now. It's like a website where you go and you see where the buses are, when your bus is going to arrive at your stop. So his idea was... Let's take this magic bus, which was, you know, the whole thing was running on pretty antiquated, like custom built uh, computers, basically, that sat in the bus, in the roof of the bus. He said, let's use this new thing called smartphones because an Android phone had just come out. Let's put an Android phone on every bus. Let's replace this system with smartphones. So that that won him his pitch competition. 
um, he started a company called Shepherd Intelligence Systems, and I was his intern. And we basically worked on that uh, through that summer and then throughout the entire next year, all the way up until 2011. So that was that was actually the genesis of Sidecar was this company called Shepherd. Oh, that's so like since we're talking about like startups and your entry into them, uh, was startup culture as prevalent back then? And uh, did you see yourself as a like as going into it early on in college? It was not as it was not like as big of a thing as it is now. I mean, like Facebook, Facebook had blown up. There were successful startups, but I was not aware of this startup craze and this startup world. I wasn't really thinking of myself as like, that's what I wanted to do. You know, especially being in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there was a very small but growing startup community. Most people were talking to companies like Qualcomm and Microsoft and Google most college students weren't thinking about starting companies. That's interesting. You say that. So you met uh, Jihan Khanna, if I reset correctly, mm -hmm. uh, from music. You went on to his startup, and then you eventually got to Sidecar. So yes. what was Sidecar like, uh, you know, in the early days? What were your initial views of the founders, their idea? Because nobody else was doing this back then, like you said in the beginning. So Definitely. Yeah, so, so Shepard, Jahan became the CTO and co-founder of Sidecar. So we, oh. as we, um, we got out of college, we were still working on this thing. We, we hooked up with a CEO who was about 10 years older than us. And he was like, we really need to, you know, we need to raise some money. Let's raise a seed round. And they did a bit of fundraising and um, pretty quickly Sunil Paul found us, I think on angel list. And he flew out to Detroit from San Francisco and met with wow, the that's team. dedication. Yeah. Yeah, I met with the team, spent like twelve hours with Jahan and Adrian, the other founder, and he decided to invest. And so he was he was basically most of our seed round and he became our CEO. And he was like, by the way, as part of this deal, let's let's move out to California. Let's kind of like take this seed of an idea that you guys have and let's turn it into a consumer product. So then, you know, that was twenty eleven, summer of twenty eleven. Uh, Jahan and I drove across the country to San Francisco and we spent the next like six ish months um, coming up with concepts, testing ideas and eventually coming up with Sidecar. So it was actually the same company all along. Oh, oh, that's, that's crazy. Very yeah. cool. So me and Vivek were talking earlier about having worked uh, in startups and we've seen how, uh, you know, quote unquote, loosely defined the roles can be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as the first employee at Sidecar, even though you did have, uh, you know, technical abilities, what were your roles and responsibilities you all over uh, the place? And uh, what were you doing there? Definitely all over the place. Um, I mean, especially since we were like 21 and 22 years old, there was very little responsibility to find. Um, you know, I was, I'm a developer, so I, my main role in the beginning was I built the the Android app that, that turned into the driver app that sits in every driver's car. Um, but then very quickly, you know, I said we, we moved to SF summer of 2011. Within a month or two, we needed to hire a contract iPhone developer to build the, the iOS version of that. So we, we found a, a dev shop and I turned into the manager of that developer. Um, and then very quickly, we needed to hire an actual like on-site developer decks to start growing our team. And then we needed to hire another back-end developer. So I kind of, almost immediately, I became the, I guess, lead developer slash 
manager and Jahan was the CTO and kind of everything else. There, there was no one doing, I'm doing air quotes. There's no one doing product at that point. So we were all also product. So basically spending our entire days, you know, writing code, testing code, but also talking to people, talking to users, trying to figure out what this product should be, uh, running experiments on what people can afford to pay and what, you know, how people want to use something like this. So a very, I guess, broadly defined role at that point. Right. So you mentioned a lot of like Android development, um, but as you mentioned, Android phones, iPhones, they were not as popular as they are now. So like what exactly was the process behind creating a mobile app when mobile technology was not nearly as popular as it is today? And what was, what was it like uh, getting customers during such a time? It was pretty funny from the driver's side. You know, the early the early drivers we recruited when we started Sidecar were a lot of them were cab drivers. A lot of them were 40, 50, 60 year old men who had never touched a smartphone before. Right. So, you know, developing the app was hard because there weren't as many resources. Android was we were using like Android 2.1. It wasn't it wasn't great yet, but yeah, very little documentation. A, I'm sure. Yeah, very little documentation, but developing a an Android app that we could put in the hands of these people who had never used a smartphone and that they could use then for like 10, 12 hours a day straight to making money was a huge challenge. That was the hardest part engineering wise was, was, you know, developing a product that made sense to people that worked all the time. That was like, you know, had as few bugs as possible. And that was this entirely new concept of, of ride sharing. Interesting. So um, if I remember correctly, at one point, uh, Sidecar had a pivot to same-day delivery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were just wondering uh, what led up to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, during the dot-com bubble, uh, I think there were a few companies, uh, they were also working on uh, the same-day delivery. It's a challenge I think we've been seeing for mm -hmm. a long time, and we will be seeing for a very long time. So what led up to that pivot? And then how did your investors react? So that pivot was actually all the way at the end of the sidecar story. So if we started in 2011 and, you know, we launched our product in early 2012, we ran a purely ride sharing business for the next three years or so. And we raised a series A and then a series B and then a series C. And it was in kind of the, um, around the series C stage where we were really struggling with like fundraising and growth and where, Uber, I think, had raised multiple billions of dollars. Lyft had raised multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, we, we were basically being like drowned by our opponent's funding. We were being crushed on prices. They were subsidizing the hell out of their prices. So someone, I think, you know, Sunil probably had the idea. We've already got this network of drivers. We've got, um, you know, shared rides. We've got this like ride matching thing that can combine people in optimal paths. Um, what if we did delivery? So we, we pivoted. We didn't do a full pivot. We kind of added delivery onto ride sharing and we did it in like the last year of the company's existence. So um, before your whole pivot, um, can you give us an intro to the ride share market back then in 2011 or so? And like what um, like what size sidecar was, what size sidecar uh, had back then in comparison to Uber and Lyft? Yes. So. People, it, it wasn't that long ago, but people have almost forgotten what it was like back then. In 2011, at least in San Francisco, there was Uber Black, which was 
Lincoln Town cars and the driver would show up and he'd be wearing a suit and a tie and he wouldn't talk to you. And it was at least as expensive as a taxi, probably more like two times as expensive. So it was this cool thing that like VCs and rich people used. Um, and then there was taxis. And the problem with taxis were, it's not like New York where there's taxis everywhere. You know, if you got lucky, you could flag down a taxi. But um, what would typically happen is especially like, you know, it's 2 a.m., you're getting out of the bar, you need a ride. There wouldn't be taxis anywhere. You would end up calling the taxi dispatch and they would be like, okay, um, yep, we'll get you a car in the next 40 minutes. Just wait where you are. And you'd be like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what, who's coming to get me? Does he have a name? And they'd be like, we don't know yet. Just just wait. A car should come. And you would literally just sit there. Yeah, and hope things are difficult at 2 a.m. Yeah. So it was bad. It was a, you know, you couldn't take Ubers because they were too expensive and you couldn't take taxis because there weren't any. So when we launched in very early 2012, I think February 2012, we really were the first product of our kind. Um, Lyft came along, I think, four months later with a pretty much the exact same product. And then UberX launched at the very end of that year. So like another four months later. But in the early days, you, you would open Sidecar or later you'd open Lyft and there would be, you know, there'd be like dozens of cars on the road, maybe. Right. So when you were competing with Uber and Lyft at this time, and, uh, you know, did you see any problems that they caused for the company? And did you scale in spite of it? Like, did you have, uh, did you think the company had an edge over the competition? And if so, what was that? That's a great question. Um, there was, you know, much internal discussion inside of Sidecar about what our competitive edge was, um, what our what our competitors did better than us that we should try to copy versus ignore. Um, I think we always, inside Sidecar, we always viewed our competitive edge as being our product. Um, you know, asking the riders and the drivers which, which product they preferred out of the three, which app do you like best? They would typically say Sidecar. We built a ton of features that were like catered towards the drivers and or the riders to kind of like make them happier and give them a better experience. Uh, so, so an example of that is we had, a, we had a lot of actually, early on we had a lot of great tools for the drivers that they didn't have on the other platform. So they could like set a uh, radius, like I only wanna give rides in this area because this is near my house. They could, um, riders could favorite drivers and then they'd be more likely to get a driver that they'd favored it and all this kind of stuff. You know, you could, you could tip your driver extra. So we had all these nice features that made the, the experience better. But what, for example, Uber did was almost the a 180 from that. They focused almost entirely on, you know, making drivers as much money as possible kind of at the expense of people's experience and at the expense of people's enjoyment. And as everyone can see, that turned out to be a, a great strategy, right? So what, where we were very heavily focused on um, product, on delivering a product that our users and our drivers loved, um, Uber was kind of maniacally focused on the operations side of things and on, on maximizing driver earnings per hour. And that was, you know, we're a business that we were trying to make money. That was obviously a focus of ours as well, but that wasn't our like defining focus in the way that it was for Uber. So everybody, I'm sure you remember surge pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Although maybe you guys Study were too young when it actually came out. 
everybody hated search pricing, right? It was just like people were people were writing blogs about it, tweeting about it. This is this is a travesty. This is unfair. How dare they? But it works brilliantly because it it moves their number one metric that they care about, which is driver earnings. So even if your users don't like the feature, if it does what it needs to do, it almost doesn't matter. That was kind of like a hard lesson for us to learn. Yeah, like price inelasticity. That's I think that's what the concept is in economics. Um, but like regardless of whether you're like whether you're Uber, whether you're Lyft, um, or whether you're a sidecar. Uh, there comes a time when you have you happen to clash with the local governments, and um, like we've seen Uber's public dealings with um, the law, all these lawsuits that show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what exactly was the interaction between local government, um, all these cities, and your company? It was a kind of an interesting balance where, for a long time, what we were doing wasn't like explicitly legal but it was too new to be illegal we basically knew that you know what we're doing is going to ruffle some feathers we're going to if no one else we're going to really piss off like the taxi union Um, so we were always prepared as a company to kind of go on the offensive legally and to be making our case that if judges if the if the town thinks this is illegal then it should be legal for these reasons but it was always it was almost always this kind of like balancing act of trying to stay on the right side of the law while pushing things forward as, as far as we could. Um, I think at Sidecar, we we took more of an approach of let's do our best to, to keep on the right side of the law. Whereas with like Uber, I think they, they pushed much more aggressively and they angered a lot more people and, you know, spent a lot more money and time in court. But they grew so fast and they were so effective at their at what they did that you know as it turns out they were able to defeat all of those legal battles the um in terms of like the specific like timing and the cases you know the times we were in court and like the cases we had to fight and like the laws that we tried to get passed um i know not too much about that that was primarily driven by our, our ceo sunil and our and our lawyers okay that's interesting. So now it's time for us to get into the meat of the matter, which would be how Sidecar started declining and eventually had to shut down. So let's, uh, you know, take it back to the beginning. And what were the first signs of things not going smoothly? What was that day? And you were involved from the very beginning with one of the co-founders and the company. So you knew this company very well, right? So what was the first sign of uh, things not being as smooth as they used to? I think, I mean, the first sign happened very early on and it wasn't, nobody really took it to be like a a death blow of any sort, but our, our fundraise, you know, our, our series a, we were raising money at around the same time that I think Lyft was. And up until that point, I think we kind of viewed ourselves and Lyft as being relatively, you know, neck and neck in this race. We had similar products. We were similar sized. Um, we had we had expanded more rapidly than they did. Okay, sorry, this is Series B, because we had we had raised a Series A of around ten million dollars, and we expanded to a, a number of markets. Um, and Lyft was still, I think, just in maybe San Francisco, LA, and maybe one or two others. So they they had stayed more local. Um, 
so at this point we we thought that we were you know at relative parity with them but there was a fundraise where lyft raised six or seven times as much as we did kind of unexpectedly out of the blue to us you know obviously not to them or their investors and that was a kind of a wake-up call that like whoa we, we are now definitively behind them when we thought we were kind of doing the same thing as them and from that point on, you know, that the, the raise where they raised, I think, 60 or 70 million and we raised like 10 or 12. We were we were trying to play catch up. Um, we we kind of just carried on with our with our plans, you know, developing the product, growing, expanding to new markets. But they got such a leg up on us in terms of like funding, hiring, growth subsidies that just this flywheel started and you know their next fundraise was that much easier and that much bigger uh it's never easy but having that much money and being that uh far ahead of us i think just made it you know that much harder for us to catch them uber was that the same as that but to an even greater degree i think uber raised over 100 million that that year lyft raised i think 60 million and we raised like 10 or 12. right like we, we talked about Uber a lot. Um, like what do you think Lyft did differently than um, Sidecar? Well, the one most obvious thing Lyft did differently was those pink mustaches. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Um, but that was, that's kind of indicative of a larger, a larger thing that Lyft did differently is Lyft focused very, very heavily on their brand and, and on their marketing. Um, it was less the, you know, they, they had a, they had like a pretty app. They had a cute app experience. They had friendly drivers that would fist bump you. But the fact that everybody knew who Lyft was because they had seen those cars driving around, they had seen the pink mustaches. Even like very early on, I remember saying to people, uh, I work at Sidecar, we're that rideshare company. And they're like, oh, the mustache guys. Oh. And I say, no, 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 that's Lyft. And something, something as silly as that, you know, they, they just kept pushing and pushing on brand and on marketing and on being like very recognizable, having a, a real like character to their brand, which we never quite pulled off. So I think, you know, where Uber dominated in terms of like operational excellence, Lyft had by far and away the best brand and therefore like the, the tightest community, I guess. During this time, did you uh, happen to have uh, interactions with your investors as you were raising your uh, different rounds and at the same time competing with other ride-sharing startups? I did very little. Um, I was not a founder and I did not really do any fundraising. So my interactions with investors were more like after the fact, you know, they, they would come through the office occasionally or we would have a, a company party and they would be there. And so I, I knew most, I knew some of them, but I, I was never like pitching to the investors or, or anything like that. Right. Um, so, like, did you see this fallout coming um, early on, or did you have a hunch at least? We had a hunch that it was going to be tough. You know, we had a hunch that we were in third place and we were the underdog, and we were we were the underdog all the way through. Um, but it did not feel like, for at least the first couple of years, it definitely didn't feel like, oh, we're we're losing and this is this is going nowhere. Like, we we really believed that even at a smaller size and at a much, much smaller team, we could still build a, a great business and a product that like people were dedicated to, which we kind of did all the way up until the very end. You know, even, even in our last year, we still had a dedicated group of people who preferred Sidecar and used it when they could. 
I think when it became, when the writing was on the wall, maybe, you know, a year prior to our acquisition, when Uber was, I think Uber raised like 1.2 billion or something. And we were just, we were looking at the relative team sizes and we're like, okay, our, our product and engineering team is 18 and Uber's is 3000. Like, how are we going to ever catch up to these guys? And there's, you know, there's all this, there was always talk about is rideshare a winner, quote, winner take all market. People loved to have that conversation. And for a while it appeared like definitely not, not at all. There's room for lots of startups. And then um, for a while it appeared that actually it's just going to be Uber and even Lyft is, you know, will never catch up and it's silly to compete with them. Uh, Uber and Lyft seem to have found a sort of balance where Lyft is, like a tenth the size of Uber, but Lyft has done a really good job at keeping the market share that they have. And the two of them are kind of like in stasis right now. I mean, they're, they're constantly fighting each other and trying to beat each other, but the two of them, it's been a winner take two market, basically. There wasn't enough room for sidecar. So would you say the company shut down when funding ran out or did you guys continue running you know, into the last days? We, so we were acquired by General Motors. Um, we started looking, you know, we started discussing the concept of being acquired probably mid 2015. We, we spoke with a number of companies. It was mostly that we, we weren't looking at like a great fundraise. We could probably have kept raising money or raising on a bridge, you know, getting some money from somewhere to keep going, but there was no clear path to the sort of growth that we really needed to to fight, right? Like there's two metrics that really matter in rideshare, which is the price of the ride and the ETA of the driver. And we were we weren't really able to compete on either because with a much smaller driver pool, the ETA is always going to be much higher. You know, if you open Uber right now, the nearest car is probably one minute away. We were looking at more like seven, eight, ten minutes. And then same with price, right? Like mm -hmm. people were still buying sidecar rides, even though we were 50% more expensive than Uber, but not enough people will pay 50% more. You know, you're not, most people are always going to take the cheaper option. And so it was, it was more just like we, we, we fought for years and it just did not appear that there was a, a strategy that would like somehow hockey stick grow us out of where we were. Right. So like, and actually, delivery was actually a pretty solid business. It was almost just that we pivoted to that too late. Like we would have had to raise another big round of funding to really make a big play at delivery. Uh, so what were the days leading up to the shutdown like? And what were the days after the shutdown like? Leading up, the last year was definitely tough. I mean, we had a, the company peaked at, I think, 90, 95 or 100 employees. Oh, and that's still a lot. That's still a lot, but, you know, Uber's about 5,000. Lyft is probably 1,500 at that point. Um, in the last year before our acquisition shutdown, um, we had, like, a, a RIF, a reduction in force, where we had to let go, like, basically 50% of the staff. And that was extremely difficult, you know, just in terms of, like, morale, but also, like, it's tough to feel like you're really going to succeed when you've just cut your company in half. Yeah. Right. And people, I think, were, it had been a long time of, like, 
ignoring ignoring the competition, ignoring the press, ignoring the fundraising, just pushing on, pushing on, trying to succeed. And it was getting to be, you know, it was wearing some people down for sure. I think many members of the team were excited at the prospect of being acquired and getting to try something else. I mean, like, what was your morale like? I decided pretty early on that I was going to see it through to the end, no matter what. I was so personally tied into the company and into the product. Like I cared so much about Sidecar that I was past the point where I was, I wasn't like on my lookout for the best opportunity. Like I could have left early on probably and gone to a big company and done extremely well. But I was, I was like, I want to, I want to see where this goes. I want to, I want to get this to a conclusion one way or the other. It was like the coolest thing anyone had ever done. It was like, you know, we invented ride sharing. It's like, I'm not going to yeah. walk away from this. That's fair. So it's dedication in the end, uh, you know, being able to look at sidecar now and all the progress you made and maybe the mistakes you made, uh, what would you say, uh, you know, were some of the places you guys fell short at, uh, that you'd urge other startups not to make the same mistakes? Very good question. Um, I want to preface this by saying this is all, you know, hindsight is 2020. We, we did a lot of hard work to try to make the right moves at the right times. We weren't just like cavalierly, you know, doing whatever felt best, but we did get a few core things pretty wrong. And I guess I'll just go through a few of them. Um, one big one is just the, the idea of proving, proving your business, proving your product in a smaller environment before trying to expand. Um, we, you know, as I mentioned, we raised our Series A and we expanded to, I think, nine markets. And it didn't, like, collapse at all. It, it was mostly the same in most of the markets. But we were, almost overnight, we were stretched very thin personnel resource-wise and engineering resource-wise. And so we were, we spent a lot of our time then trying to handle this scale that we had kind of, like, artificially given ourselves. And I think at that point, Lyft was still in just San Francisco and LA. And they were really just hammering their, making sure their business model, the unit economics were perfect, making sure they had a really good system for like, you know, communicating with their drivers and resolving issues and making sure they had their like community management down with their user base. So they were just like, I wouldn't say perfecting, but really honing their, their like early business. And they just, and once they decided that that was good enough, they went out and raised money and they said, look, we, these two cities are killing it. We can do this in a hundred cities with the right amount of money. Right. And their um, brand we, definitely we, helped as well. Oh yeah, for sure. So our approach of like, let's be first to market. Um, things are, things are working pretty well in San Francisco. Let's, let's just blow this up. Let's just repeat this in multiple places. Um, I think the complexity that it added both product and engineering wise and like team scale wise, that amount of overhead was something I wish we hadn't had to be dealing with at that point. So the lesson is, you know, you don't need to be big before you've proven that the thing really, really works. And that's, that goes way beyond your product working. It's like, does your, does your entire operation work, right? Does your team work? Um, does the economics work? Does your support work? Does everything work 
exactly as it should in at the size you are now before you expand. Um, another one, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but you know, we, we we built a lot of features. We did a lot of work to try to make our user base happy, which feels like a pretty obvious thing to do, right? You want your users to love you and love your product. But in some of those cases, um, making our users happy hurt our bottom line. And at the end of the day, the happiest drivers were the ones making the most money. They weren't the ones who had the best app, right? So I wish we had been a little more kind of, I almost want to say ruthless in terms of like prioritizing things that, you know, moved our bottom line and helped our metrics versus right. trying to make people like us and like the app. Because we definitely accomplished the latter. People liked us, people liked the app. But at the end of the day, you know, you could have the best app in the world. If it doesn't do the thing it needs to do and solve your user's problem for them, they're going to go somewhere else. Right. Whereas Uber was very aggressive and caused controversy, but in the end of the day, they made drivers a lot of money. Right. Drivers yeah. are like, fucking Uber, I hate them. And they're still driving them <laughs> every day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> General lesson, right? At the end of the day, the best price wins. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is there anything you as an early employee uh, would do differently in hindsight? And is there anything you would have told your founders? Well, so I was 22. I had never like built anything that anyone had used before. So I missed it. I made every mistake in the book, you know, um, mm. we probably spent way more time than we should have fixing fixing stupid bugs and outages and all, all that kind of stuff that goes along with software engineering. So I would have, if I could have my 31 year old brain in that 22 year old, I think we would have built things a little better. Um, and, and then just like no one on the team knew to do this at the time, but just, just this idea of being like ruthlessly focused on the things that you choose to build. Uh, we built we built a lot of cool stuff. We had we had so many good ideas. We, had, we were so excited about what we were doing. You know, we wanted this app to be fantastic. We built and built and built a ton of stuff, but we could have taken more time to you know perfect what we were doing and to really, really test our assumptions to, to really make sure that these features were doing what they were supposed to do and that we were you know, delivering the maximum value before moving on and building something new, expanding the scope of, of the app and all of that. So it's it's counterintuitive when you have a great idea and you have product market fit, you've got this hot thing. There's a thousand ideas for how you can make it better. Everyone has ideas for how to make it better. Right, right. And some and it's it's easy to be like, all right, let's put them all on a list, let's prioritize them and let's do them as fast as we can. But in fact you should really be doing as few of them as you can get away with because the, the best products start out very, very simple. You know, there's no noise. Right. They're just solving a core problem very well. You should focus on like the thing you do best and do it better than anybody else is what you're saying. Yep. So I'm actually happy you mentioned product market fit. I think a, a lot of times these days, uh, startups might not pay enough attention to it. Uh, so, you know, most startups at the end of the day apparently fail for two reasons. They don't reach product market fit or they fail at execution. Would you say Sidecar fell into either of the two buckets, both or maybe even neither? Sidecar had outstanding product market fit. We, it was so good that people were paying $20 for a ride when the app barely worked in the very, very beginning. You know, people were lining up to use this product that didn't really even exist yet. So. That's like the best example of product market fit. 
Um, if we failed on anything, it was more on the execution side, I think. And just, I don't want to blame fundraising, but you know, the ability to compete, the ability to out-execute much larger opponents. Uh, what was like one decision execution or operations that uh, your company made that seemed good at the time, but uh, turned out poorly? That's a really good question. Well, the, I mean, the expanding, expanding before our competitors did. Uh, I've already mentioned that one. I don't want to attribute too much meaning to like each decision that we made, but I guess not copying surge pricing right away. Probably, if we had just if we had just identified, wow, that's that's a great idea. It's working. Let's copy it. I think we we overemphasized the differentiation that we don't have surge pricing, right? And we never will. And people are like, yay, we love you. We hate surge pricing. <laughs> if we had seen through that the emotional side of it to to see like what a great innovation it was and just copied it, we would have kind of you know taken taken some of the wind out of Uber's sails. And there were many moments like that where someone did something that was clearly excellent, but we didn't we wanted to be differentiated, or we didn't want to seem like we were just copying them or we like didn't prioritize it or make the time to do it. And the, that thing that we failed to mimic ended up being a differentiator for them in a good way. So now that we've heard the story of Sidecar, I think some of the listeners might want some closure. So could you tell us about how GM got involved with the company and what was the process of what happened after? Yeah, so as I said, in 2015, you know, we, we spoke with a number of companies about acquisition GM ended up being the best fit they were really excited at the prospect of uh, working with a startup that had mobility experience smart mobility experience GM you know you wouldn't see it from the outside but GM has a huge number of programs going on behind the scenes everything from rideshare to car share to carpooling to self-driving cars to right, cruise you name it yeah cruise exactly so they wanted us, they didn't have a, like a clearly defined project for us, but, but they, they knew that we were a small team of people who had like, like the best possible experience to be slotted into GM to help them build mobility apps. So they, we, we closed that deal with them in early 2016. Um, we did a, the team was down to about 25 by that point. So we were quite small. And they flew us all out to Detroit for the week. They introduced us to all the big shots at GM and they, you know, they toured us around and showed us all their innovation labs and their self-driving cars and all the cool stuff they were doing. And then they let us, well, we, we negotiated to keep our office to stay in San Francisco. Nobody wanted to move to Michigan. And we kind of just kept operating as sidecar, except we were GM now. And there were a couple GM managers and VPs who were kind of in charge of us and in charge of integrating us with the company. And then they bought Cruise a couple months later. And that's when things kind of started to change for the side the ex sidecar team. Because myself and three other people actually joined Cruise. We quit GM to join Cruise, even though Cruise was owned by GM. I mean it is kind of interesting that your uh, journey uh, st- started and ended in Michigan, looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great nice point. Little loop. Michigan's a big car state. Yeah. It's been great having you here, Tom. Um, we certainly learned a lot from your experience at Sidecar. 
this has been a really great first episode for both of us. Yes, I, I, I agree 100%. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with you guys. All right, so that's that's our first episode. It's been great having Tom here and learning from him. We hope to have uh, episodes in the future that are just as great and informative as this. There you have it. That's Crash Pad. Thanks for listening.